the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Glenn Beck. It's Tuesday, September 11th. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. Fifty-two. Something weird is going on. Yeah. We, the World Trade Center is on fire. Oh my Seriously, goodness! Seriously, the top it, of the building. We're trying to get information. Top level of one of the. News to unfold from New York City. A plane crashed. <gasps> Just. My sister's in that building. Okay. And I hope she's okay. And I gotta run to New York. Oh my God! It's complete pandemonium. All right, first of all, calm down. We're- it's raining papers and ashes. Second plane has now flown in. Wait, the explosion world. at the Pentagon? A third location are on alert and outside of Washington. I don't have words to describe what I'm witnessing right now. Effective immediately until further notice, flight operations in the national airspace system by United States civil aircraft and foreign civil and military aircraft are prohibited. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Oh, God. Oh, my God. It just landed on Manhattan. All right, so now uh, we look back up to the TV. One of the World Trade Towers has collapsed and fallen. We're not going to be stopped. 
We're not going to be deterred. We're not going to stay at home. We're not going to be frightened. We're going to live our lives as Americans. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. We're all brothers. We all got to stick together. Skyline without the towers. It is Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. This is Glenn Beck. Dateline, New York. In one of the most audacious attacks ever, terrorists hijacked two airliners, crashed them into the World Trade Center. In a coordinated series of blows today that brought down the twin 110 story towers. Thousands may be dead, 58,000 people work at the World Trade Center. She wanted me, I just wanted to let you know I love you and I'm stuck in this building. Please, the building is falling off. We don't know, but there's lots of smoke and we just wanted you to know that I love you. Oh, buddy. One plane, United Flight 93, crashed north of Somerset County Airport, a small airport 80 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. United said that flight, Boeing 757, left Newark at 8.01, and entry San it is as old as the scriptures. We will not falter. And it is as clear. And we will not fail. In the American Constitution. Let's roll, let's roll, let's roll, let's roll, let's roll. That is the news of this day. September 11th, 2001. Is that United 93? Is that United 93 calling? People who were born around 9-11 are getting ready to vote for the very first time. They don't remember an America that, that wasn't at war. An America where Fox wasn't a powerhouse. It wasn't. It wasn't us versus them. Katie Couric was America's sweetheart. Now most people don't even know who Katie Couric is. It was a time before Matt Lauer was known as a predator. Our home phones were still really our primary source of communication, and they were wired, usually on the wall in a kitchen. There were no smartphones. There were no text messages, 
No Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. In fact, the largest social network in the history of the world was still four years away. And that social network was MySpace. People who will be voting for the first time don't remember a time before there was a TSA being patted down at the airport. The intrusions that are made with the people in the blue gloves and the blue shirts. There was no homeland security. There was no snooping that we knew of. It was a time before, it was a time when it was rare to see amputations, robotic arms, robotic legs, feet and legs that have been replaced by a blade or a ski. I don't even know what they are. Before September 11th, most people didn't really have a strong opinion on Islam. They didn't even know what it was. Nobody knew who Osama bin Laden was. There was a time, so long ago now, We're 21 soldiers at best. Killed themselves every day. There was a time before words were meaningless. There was a time when we could come together. There was a time when truth and justice meant the American way. And then September 11th happened. On a beautiful Tuesday morning. We woke up for a moment. And then we went back to sleep. But the good news is, we are, as individuals, should we choose, stronger because of it, more wise. We know what our country is, what our country has done, what our country can do, who we are as a people, who we hope to be, who we wish to be. We're bogged down in the smoke and the dust of all the old lies coming down.
tower after tower. But should we choose, that dust will settle. And we can clean ourselves up and reunite. Because it's not September 11th that is the memory we choose. It's September 12th, the day after. That's the memory that all of us wish we could relive over and over and over again. All of us Republicans and Democrats. Because that was the day we came together, not with our fist raised in our hand, fist raised in the air, but our, our hand down with palm open, willing to share, willing to help, willing to lift up. Tuesday, September 11th, 20. 18. For most Americans, their home is the biggest investment they will make. Our sponsor this half hour is realestateagentsitrust.com. Realestateagentsitrust.com is a, a service that comes from Mercury, my company, um, that my wife and I uh, started with my, my brother. He's like my brother. We grew up together. Robert, he's a, such a decent man and and we had this idea that real estate doesn't have to be confusing it doesn't have to be with somebody who doesn't know what they're doing or doing it part-time or just i don't know uh hire the guy you see on the back of the the bus stop no how about hiring somebody who's the best in the business hiring somebody who really knows your area hiring somebody who's going to sell your house for the most amount of money and on time how about, how about buying a house with somebody who's truly listening to you, especially if you have to move across the country? I need somebody who's going to listen, who really understands me. That's the real estate agent that we have waiting for you. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Over 1,500 agents all across the country. And we want you to meet them. Realestateagentsitrust.com, handpicked for their uh, knowledge, their skill, and their track record, their credibility, their authenticity, and their willingness to, to help. Realestateagentsitrust.com. We thought it would be really fascinating today to give you three perspectives that you haven't heard before. Uh, one of them is from a guy named Bob Beckwith. You might remember Bob. He was the firefighter that stood next to George W. Bush on the fire truck and the famous bullhorn speech that George Bush gave. I've kind of made this deal with myself that I'm not going to spend another day where I have access to people who have witnessed history and not talk to them. Bob is now in his, what, 80s? Uh, and we called him up and said, Bob, can you tell us, can you tell us about that experience and what happened? He told us the most amazing story that we have, we've never heard any place else. And I don't know why, because it is a fascinating story. 
He's coming up in hour number three. Also, we thought we would spend time with two people with very different perspective. One was on the other side of the planet and actually saw it happen in a bar on television, but thought it was just a bad movie. And the other was 20 blocks away and watched it fall. We want to welcome to the uh, program Jason Jason Patrill and uh, also Riaz Patel. How are you, Riaz? <laughs> We're all laughing because we just you? corrected you on our names. And <laughs> now you're very self-conscious. I've known you guys forever, and I can never get your pronunciation right. Now I never will. <laughs> to be clear, he went one for two there. <laughs> yeah. uh, Patel and Buttrill. Buttrill. <laughs> Jason Buttrill. his way through my name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. How are you? Uh, Jason, uh, you were actually in the military. Yeah. And um, you were on shore leave. Yep. Where? Darwin, Australia, which was like a crazy bucket list item for anybody that's in the military. Well, I guess really anybody really wants to go to Australia. Yeah. But like, you got to think about the time. This, this is, it was peacetime. You know, like ever, all of us that joined the military were doing it probably to pay for college. Like there was no wars breaking out. There was no sign that it wasn't like now. Like now, you pretty much expect if you go into the military, you're probably going to see combat. But that was not 2001. That was definitely not then. No, we hadn't seen combat really since the Gulf War. And even then, it was over so fast, yeah. you know, and yeah. it's just over with. But so th- that was our mindset. So like we were, our deployment schedule was basically just like a big vacation schedule. You go and do a quick little, you know, you know, exercise, which we were doing with the with the Australian Marines. And but no one really cared about that. We were just going out and having fun in Australia. Mm-hmm. But so that that was that was the day of September 11th was crazy. So like they let out everybody off the boats. We hit, you know, and you can imagine if you've been cooped up on a ship for two or three weeks, you are ready to have some fun. So we ran out sightseeing all day long. Um, None of us had a clue about what was going to happen that night because we were still asleep. Yeah, that's right. So it was like, yeah, it was during the daytime. Uh, towards the end of the night, I guess it was probably morning, or I don't even know what time the actual planes hit. Uh, uh, nine, uh, eight fifty, something like that. Nine thirty, nine oh two. Yeah, something like that. Okay, so we're winding down our shore leave. It's supposed to end that night around eleven or twelve a.m. I think that mm-hmm. night. So we're we're taking it all, you know, in. We're taking uh, as much as we can. We're soaking it all in. I'm sitting at a sports bar. Tons of Marines, tons of sailors, all over this, all over the streets. There's fights breaking out. You can imagine how it is. It's it's not it's not very pretty. Um, so I, I glance over my shoulder and I see what looks like a bad Australian movie. There's one of the towers that's on fire. I didn't even I didn't even think I connected it to the World Trade Center at the time. I looked over, saw it, um, kept on having the conversation, drinking my last beer of shore leave before we go back on ship, and. Uh, it, Things started getting a little bit crazy maybe about an hour later. A lot of commotion out in the streets. Tons of commotion. You're screaming. Everyone's freaking out. I think more fights are breaking out. Stupid Marines. Um, That all changed maybe about 15 minutes later when all the military police and the Marines on duty and the the, uh, Navy people on duty came out started stopped all the music like everyone now get to van get to the vans we have parked outside if there's overflow get in a taxi cab it's on you to make it out because we are pulling out in about 60 minutes which was nothing you had ever seen before no i when you're in the military sometimes they want to test you to see if you could be a conscientious objector and they want to see like they'll trick you into thinking an attack happened some of us thought that's what was happening like well this is just an exercise elaborate so you get into the van you get to the ship and what happens next will happen next on this program. Stand by.
This is the Glenn Beck Program. We're just looking up at the monitors, and Fox is, uh, you know, doing a compilation of all of the films from 9-11, and uh, Bob Beckwith, that, that firefighter uh, that we're going to be speaking to here in about two hours, uh, you know, that was standing next to George Bush with the bullhorn, is up there, and we're all laughing, now going, how, how to... How? <laughs> We look at that that video now, and you will too, in completely different ways. Mm-hmm. We're like, he was afraid of getting caught. It's a fascinating story. <laughs> Seventeen years, I thought about that. I thought he ran the entire recovery operation down there. That's why I thought he was up there. Wait until you hear totally different. Wait until you hear the story. It's amazing. Okay, so we were with Jason. He was in Australia, um, and you were an enlisted guy. This is you joined. You know, get a get an education, go have some fun, uh, and all of a sudden, you're being jammed into a van in the middle of the night. You've seen the World Trade Center on t- on fire, but you thought it was just a bad Australian movie, right? I'm still not connecting anything to that, really, because we like we were talking in the break how sometimes they try and do little tricks on you to see if you're a conscious conscientious objector, um, because that literally that was the time we were in. You know, the people did not really join because they thought they were going to combat. It just was that was not the state of mind during that time. You went for college education or. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, so we're in the we're, we're in the vans and we're heading on. And we're like, there's a sergeant that's in the in the passenger seat riding shotgun. And I'm like, Sergeant, what's what's going on? And he's like, well, I, I don't know fully myself, but thousands of Americans have just died. The United States is under attack. And that's all I know. And really, you're just like, I mean, it was it was like a gut punch. We're like, what? I mean, I still it's like, is this real? So we get back to the uh, we get back to the ship and it's it, it looks like one of those World War Two movies where there is just hundreds and hundreds of people getting on the boats because everyone's getting on in mass. Kind of ship were you on? It was a uh, I think it's called an LHA. So it looks like a aircraft carrier, mm-hmm. but it's a little bit smaller than that because it's for helicopters. Okay. Um, so mostly just tons of Marines and tons mm-hmm. of pilots on this thing. So I hit the ship. First thing I went was straight to the skiff, which is the place where all the, you know, classified information goes. Cause into. you are, you were in intelligence, right? And I uh, went in there. It, I barely was able to squeeze in the captain of the ship was there. Everyone's there. This is the kind of room that you need a combination to get into the, into the room. It's one of those, you see them in the movies where it's all red lit, right. all red lights, right? Um, go inside there. I, I barely was able to squeeze in, uh, instantly got kicked out, but I was able to confirm that yes, the attack on the twin towers happened. Uh, they were tracking everything going on at the Pentagon, everything. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is insane. Uh, I got kicked out cause I was very low man on the totem pole <laughs> and, uh, went out to go find my buddies. We were just starting to push off and something that I noticed, uh, it's weird the things you notice that really have an impact, but we were always told that, you know, you never see the Navy manning their big 50 cal machine guns on the side of the, oh, the boats. That just doesn't happen unless they're going through like the Persian Gulf mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that. Well, they were, the, the covers were off the guns. They were manning them. The kids looked scared. Uh, I remember that I'd never forget the looks on some of their faces. Their kids are like 18, 19 years old and they're manning these guns, not knowing what's going on because at this point only a select few people know what's going on at that point. So they have no idea. There's rumors that we've been attacked. That's all everyone knows at this point, but they're manning these guns fully loaded and we're pushing out. We're like, what is going on? So about a couple hours later, everyone that's not on duty gets called up to the flight deck and, uh, you know, it's your typical, like, Top Gun scene. You know, mm-hmm. everyone's up on the flight deck. We're all in formation. And I, to this day, I cannot remember what the captain of the ship said. I have no recollection of what he said at all. I think we were just kind of just dazed. But I'll never forget what the colonel of the Marine Expeditionary Unit said. 
full bird kernel has us all, uh, you know, information. And it was very short, very sweet and to the point, but it, it was something along the lines of this. He said, men, my father and your grandfather's day of infamy was December 7th, 1941. I remember he stopped, kind of collected himself. And he was like, that's in the history books, but that is their history. Our day of infamy will forever be known as September 11th, 2001. He said, men, we've been attacked. We're going to war. And we're supposed to not say anything during those formations, but everybody elated. Everyone's, you know, it was a roar, basically, is the best way to describe it. Everyone was pissed off. Um, It was confirmed. It all hit home at that point that this is very real. What we've been training for, the reason why we joined the military was not to, you know, get our colleges paid for, it was to protect our country. And it's, it was a weird feeling. It was, you know, we were all mad, but we were all disappointed. There's a feeling of this was our watch. This happened under our watch. So what are you going to do about it? Well, uh, we a brief humanitarian stint in East Timor that we did. From there, we immediately went off to the coast of Pakistan. Mm. Um, from there, we stayed in Pakistan for about a month. This all went very, very quickly. So I, I had no idea what was going on back home, everything going on. But we were invading Afghanistan within just a couple months later. So I want to now take us back home to a very different perspective. Uh, we'll do that when we come back. It's Tuesday, September 11th. Liberty Safes is our sponsor this half hour. Uh, if you are, if you have anything, if you have guns at home, you need a Liberty Safe. If you have uh, documents at home, you need a Liberty Safe. If you have precious metals or jewelry or, you know, whatever, you need a Liberty Safe. If you have pictures, you need a Liberty Safe. Liberty Safe, made with the highest quality materials and made here in America. They give you fast access to your firearms and your valuables. And owning a Liberty Safe is part of, you know, responsible gun ownership or really, honestly, being an adult. Uh, the number one complaint on Liberty Safe, honestly, is I should have bought a bigger one. Because as soon as you get one, you realize, oh, crap, I should probably have that in a safe, too. You, It's it's a weird thing, and apparently it didn't just happen to me. It happens to everybody. Liberty Safe. You can find them everywhere. Look for them by name. The best-built safe in America, bar none. It is LibertySafe.com. LibertySafe.com. So here we are in a world that is radically different to the point to where you meet somebody like I met uh, Riaz Patel, and uh, the first thing he thought of me without meeting me was, "He's got to be—he's got to be a guy who you know hates Islam or is a problem with Islamic people." And my first thought was, "Oh, he's a sleeper cell." <laughs> uh, I've realized now it's more of a coma cell. He never wakes up. Anyway, um uh and and here we are friends, but your your experience being a Pakistani Muslim immigrant mm-hmm. was very different and you're living 20 mile or 20 blocks away from blocks the away. World yeah. Trade Center. Yeah, it was just down 7th Avenue in Varick direct line you could see down 7th Avenue to the Twin Towers was where I lived. What happened that day? 
I woke up because my answering machine, I couldn't remember what it was called because it was so long ago, an answering machine, uh, s- someone I worked with said, you've got to get up, you've got to get up, something's going on. And that was when the second tower hit. And so what I did is I went up to the roof of my building and saw what it looked like two cigarettes, the Twin Towers, with little red on top. It didn't look like, it was, they literally looked like two cigarettes burning. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was so strange. And I went down and didn't quite understand. No one knew what was going on. And then I came back up and one of them was gone. And I had never, they say in movies where people like stumble backwards when they can't comprehend something. It actually does happen. You, you, I got up to the top of my roof and then took three, four steps back because what I was seeing, the largest buildings in Manhattan, were, one of them wasn't there, like gone. And then I watched the second one come down and the slow motion of that slowly falling a building that you get out of a subway and you look for the Twin Tower and you know whether you're looking south or north. It is your compass in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. It was gone. It was a mountain. Um, Riaz, I've watched the space shuttle. Have you ever watched the space shuttle take off? Yeah. Okay. You know how you're so far away. You see it. It lights. You see the smoke. Yeah. You see everything. And then you hear it. Yeah. Many seconds later. Was there that time differential? There was. The sound, you could hear something, and then the rumble sort of built, and then it kept going. It was sort of building and building as it fell. The smoke dispelled along the streets, which was so strange. And the thing that I remember the most is the smell. For days, there was this smell of incinerated everything, materials, flesh. It was the most acrid smell. And walking around. You're the only person I have ever heard. Tanya and I, uh, for years, at least a decade, thank God I've forgotten that smell. Every time I would think about the World Trade Center, I could smell that smell. Yes. And it's, it was. It's smell, it's, it's, I imagine what, what, uh, what, you know, you smell things in wartime. It felt like being in a war zone, and I was not a soldier. I had not, it was literally just going to work that day. And we suddenly felt like we were in a battle zone, and you saw the people walking along, covered in this dust, coming from the trade centers. They're walking up towards wherever. Um, the, the posters that people put desperately looking for this loved one. Oh, my gosh. That was the most heartbreaking thing, that you would see these on every flat surface of walls, of hospitals in Grand Central. Photos, their most abor- adorable photo of a woman with her children saying, missing, 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 missing. And you knew on some level, none of these people would ever be found again. Um, so... Um you had a different experience. Yeah. You went down to, how many days later, you went down to one of, a bar that you... Uh, two days later. So so the next day, September 12th, I was standing in line at 8 a.m. Uh, at St. Vincent to donate blood. We didn't know what was needed. We didn't know what kind of injuries there were. And at some point, the line started watching me. And actually, I remember the line turning on me. And I was with two friends. And this guy said to me, we should kill you and your family for what you did. And oh my gosh. if my friends had not been standing there with me, I don't think they ever believed it would have happened in Manhattan. And for the next week, friends of mine would take turns walking me from home to work and back. Um, I was in my neighborhood bar, which I'd been a hundred times. And, you know, we, we all drank a lot more. I'll tell you that. After 9-11, mm-hmm. we all, that's all we did all day. We just had no idea what to do. And the neighborhood bar said, look, man, I hate to do this, but, you know, some people are getting uncomfortable and, and would you mind leaving? And... I said, I, I get it. They're scared. I'm scared. And I left. And I thought, this is going to be a different experience that I've ever had in, in America. And it was fear. so bizarre because you are an American. I you am. are doing the same. Yeah. You're grieving the same way we are. And, I, and a friend of mine, a very good friend, Garth, first guy I ever met in university, died in Tower One. Um, and I know this because I saw a photo of him 
on the wall at Grand Central saying missing. And until then, I didn't know he was there. He was there for a meeting. And so the grief was actually someone I know is, is gone. We can't find him. And I think it was so primal. It became so primal. You know, it was, it was war. It was life. It was death. And it was just a very strange thing to have that rage directed at, at you. And it changed my life. It changed the way I see when people are angry and upset that it's not about me. It's about something else. And so what is that other thing? And that sort of changed a way I look at the world now after 9-11 is that things can happen and change the way you're perceived in a moment, but it's not about you. And so figuring out how to rehumanize yourself, which is why I do what I'm doing now these days, is really key to me because it's so easy to become another. And I think it's a really, really empowering thing to say, no, I'm not the other. I'm this. And so those weeks were tricky. I was on the rubbish pile, the, the, the whatever you call it, the next day handing out meals to the rescue workers. Um, it, all of work stopped. And we just went and tried and help what we could feed rescue workers, cheer them as they went down, cheer them as they came back. It was weird, wasn't it? It was so, but we would always applaud the, yeah. the firemen. It's so strange. Uh, I, Tanya and I were alone when we went. And um, we stood there alone on the street and these firemen, these rescue workers came out and they just looked so tired and so, you know, what they looked like. And they were walking away from the pit and Tanya and I didn't know what to do. We, we just, both of us, all of a sudden, just started clapping yeah. like it was a parade. It, it was felt weird. right to do that. It felt very yeah, much it like did. It what like you've done old... is heroic, and you deserve to know that. Yes. And a thank you is not enough. Yes. And we would stand in crowds on West Side Highway, cheering the fire trucks as they went down and cheering them back. Like, what could you do as a human being to help? I feel like everyone tried to do. And so there was a, I saw the worst of people, and I saw the absolute best of people. The kindness and openness and the us of it, you know, community was, was amazing. Um, but it, but it is a moment that changed the trajectory of my life, it, practically and in many other ways. But I think I think it changed the trajectory of everyone. All of ours. Yeah. I mean, literally, it changed the trajectory of the world as it as it should. Um, Riaz, thank you for being my friend. Thanks for being here today. <laughs> Even though I'm a Jason. sleeper cell, I'm a coma cell. No, you're a coma cell. cell. You never wake cell. up. There's, you're I'm a cell so sleepy, I have no idea yeah. what my actual mission yeah. is. I just go through life. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they don't even send you a message. Maybe They're they'll like, call nah, me up. He's not going to do anything no. anyway. Uh, so, uh, lovely being here. Always yeah. good to talk to you guys. Jason, thank you for um, your service at that time. Um, when you were on the battlefield, do you know that smell that we were talking about? Absolutely. You yeah. do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's the closest I've ever felt to what you would have experienced in war is that smell, that panic, that running, that, and I, I have a lot of appreciation and respect for people who walk into that. We didn't have a traumatic experience. You know, you go to war, you're killing people, yeah. they're killing, they're, your friends are dying. That's pretty traumatic. And I can't, it get, kind of gives me a, an, a, a very small appreciation of PTSD because you, uh, you could have that memory you could see something and it would trigger and it would become so real you could smell it again that smell is specifically you mentioned ptsd that's something that if, if no matter how you come across it um whether it was in your experience or as or, or in, a, in a soldier's you never lose it yeah. and it's something that can get triggered again like i don't know if you've if you've come across this before but it, that you can get triggered by just smelling that i have i uh, say i haven't smelt it again. I, I haven't either and i've i've lost the smell i've lost here's what i've lost i used to see pictures of it or i used to even just think of it and i could smell it mm-hmm. you know what i mean 
I can't smell it anymore, but I would recognize it the minute I smell it. I can it still again. smell it, but I can't imagine where I would ever smell that again. God forbid I ever. But it is. I still remember it. I These still are the only guys it. that I've ever talked to that. I, I've said that to people before, and they were like, really? Yeah. Because it was the constant, like, whether you could see it or not see it, whether you were walking towards it or away from it, it was that smell yeah. you could not escape. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, we have one more story that we're going to share in hour number three from Bob Beckwith. He is the guy who was on the fire truck with George W. Bush. Uh, we did an interview with him just a few days ago that it's going to change the way you remember that moment. Uh, it's the most incredible story you've heard. And I can't believe I haven't heard it before. Bob Beckwith joins us. Hour number three. Don't miss it. The country has been pushed to the limit. Our political bonds have been torn apart. We need a true leader who can save us from certain doom. (laughs) Unfortunately, we could only find this guy. Hey, it's Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck is coming live to talk about the right path forward and to make fun of the people standing in the way. He might not be able to save the country, but at least we can all go down laughing. Glenn Beck Live, the Addicted to Outrage Tour, on tour this fall. For tickets, VIP packages, and more, visit glennbeck.com. Glenn Beck. When I was a when I was a teenager, my mother died. Right after that, my grandfather died. And then I moved away from home. And I learned not to deal with things. As a recovering alcoholic, I have dealt with many of my demons, but one I have not been able to shake. To my shame. Has been Hide from those who you love that you are losing or have lost. And move on. Last night I went home and I was just so beat tired. And the phone rang. And it was a wife of a dear friend who has cancer and they didn't know if he would make it through the night. He's battled cancer for years. He is a spiritual giant. For the last few weeks, I have wanted to be there with everything in me and everything in me at the same time has told me to stay away or tomorrow. I I drove to his house last night and I, my legs were like lead as I walked up his pathway to his house hand in hand with my wife. I went into his bedroom 
His eyes opened and he saw me and tried to smile, tried to speak, but couldn't. I knelt by his bedside last night, holding his hand. I am a, as you can imagine, I'm sometimes a sloppy crier. Sometimes I get, and I think we've all had this, where it's that ugly cry to where if you speak, you're going to blow snot all over yourself, and it's just going to be ugly. held his frail hand and for 20 minutes I said nothing because I was unable to speak he was so weak and all I could think of was you cannot leave here without saying this It was nine words. For 20 minutes, I struggled to say nine words. I thought he was sleeping. And I had composed myself enough to where I thought I could get those nine words out. And I did. First, the first four. And then the remaining five. He moaned, and he squeezed my hand as tightly as he could. It took him about five minutes as he breathed deeply to respond and say the three words he needed to say. They were the three words. that mean everything. This morning I got up and I started looking at the news. I started reading the stories in a world that is teaching us that words are meaningless. Or have... Or have for power purposes. 
words' meanings have been changed, or those words have been thrown around so much they have become meaningless. But before I begin this hour, I want to tell you, words have power. They have the power to create. The power to lift up. Or the power to destroy. While the world may teach our children that words are meaningless, I want you to know that they are not. I know the... I know the power of words. And I know them today better than most. Welcome back to the uh, program. We have a great hour for you coming up in a second. I want to tell you about our sponsor this uh, this half hour of the program, and uh, that is um, uh, the Palm Beach Letter. The Palm Beach Palm Beach Letter is this um, investment letter that um, is is really kind of run by um, Tika Tawari. He 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 is really really an amazing advisor when it comes to cryptocurrency and understands it he's a guy who's learned in wall street uh when to invest when not to invest uh and has learned some really tough lessons through the tech sector um years ago back in the 90s started getting into uh cryptocurrency and has talked to everyone and so really knows how it works. Yeah, he's like one of these guys that goes and actually talks to the developers of each of these cryptocurrencies yeah. and finds out whether, all right, these guys have it together, these guys don't. It's, you know, trying to stay away from the hype of it all. Because if you you know, look at these names and the fancy names that come out of every time there's a new one, everyone's mm-hmm. excited about it. Well, and there's a, there's a lot more to it than just a new name and a nice logo. Right. And there's all kinds of technology that is that is required around it that has yet to be introduced. Um, that's why we've asked him to put together a course so you could brush up on what cryptocurrency is, uh, how to invest if you wanted to, uh, what blockchain is, what does that mean? What, how, how is this a game changer? Smartcryptocourse.com. Teach a, 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 a Tika is a great teacher and he'll teach you all about it. Uh, it is uh, smartcryptocourse.com, smartcryptocourse.com. Educate yourself. Do your own homework. Call 877-PBL-BECK, 877-PBL-BECK, smartcryptocourse.com. North Carolina, we are thinking of you and praying for you. Please, please heed the warnings. Um, we'll have more on the hurricane that is coming ashore. And Mercury One is already uh, getting into gear and placing people so we can have help on the ground right away. If you want to be a part of that, go to mercuryone.org, mercuryone.org, 
and uh, and make a donation now so we can have the people on the ground to help immediately after the storm. Uh, all right. We have a very we have a fascinating um, uh, person I want to introduce you to. Her name is Heather McDonald, and she is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and she's she's written for just about everybody. Um, and she's seen something that she finds really disturbing, and she's put it together in a new book called The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt um, the University and Undermine Our Culture. And it is what we're all feeling now. And it's appropriate that you're here today because it's all about words having meaning. Hello, Heather. How are you? Well, thanks for having me on, Glenn. I greatly appreciate it. Sure. So, um, you know, I've I've just uh, my book comes out next week and it it really revolves around the idea of postmodernism that most people don't even understand. And it's what's being spoon fed to our children in universities and they come home and they speak a different language and we're just like, ah, that's crazy. But it's not. It's really powerful. Can you get into, you know, how you define it and, and what you're seeing? Well, that's absolutely right, what you're saying, Glenn. The public has had a tendency to laugh off the counterintuitive, counterfactual, delusional ideology that's coming out of the universities that holds that there's no differences between males and females, that America is endemically racist and sexist, that any differences in representation in groups must be the result of bias rather than different inclinations, different mm-hmm. habits. And they've, they've tended to think, ah, oh, it's just those silly college students. Once they get out into the real world, they'll stiffen up their spines and, and uh, you know, the marketplace will take care of things. That's not happening. The, the delusional ideology that believes that racism and sexism are the most pervasive features of American society, that society is is, and, and college campuses in particular, but society in general, is divided into victim groups, their oppressors, and then if, you're, if you work really hard to get out of the oppressor category, you get to be an ally. Uh, that is transforming the world at large. We see trigger-happy uh, reactions to any unorthodox speech. The Google fired a computer engineer who dared to challenge the, the dominant feminist ideology at that company. Other, other Silicon Valley companies are obviously likewise under the thrall of, of feminism and, and uh, sort of the diversity thinking. So this is happening very quickly, and it is, it is worth the public's while to pay attention to what's happening and to start pushing back against this narrative. So I want to I want to talk to you about that, Heather, because there there hasn't really been a an effective dismantling of of this tool because it makes no sense. It's it's its purpose is to destroy language, families, people, self, you know, everything. Absolutely everything. Reality is destroyed under this. And because it's so nonsensical, uh, it it has built this this I, I don't even know what it is, but a, a way for, you know, reason to be dismissed because reason is part of the problem. So how do you dismantle this? 
by pointing out the facts, but you're absolutely right to be sort of apocalyptic in your rhetoric. This is very profound. We are we are playing with the legacy of of the enlightenment, of yes. reason, of science. Science is now coming under enormous pressure from the National Science Foundation, no less, to hire by race and gender instead of merit. We are we are putting our scientific uh, competitive edge at risk. What I have to, what I do, is simply point out the facts. I start with the college campuses. The the conceit is that to be a female, let's say, on a college campus today, is to be the target of lethal threat. This is absurd. There has never been a more tolerant, compassionate environment in human history for society's traditionally oppressed groups than a college campus. Uh, as far as race goes, and, and I have never been discriminated in my life as a female. I, I was at Yale in the 1970s, right after it went co-education, uh, co-ed. If ever there would have been a time when Yale was discriminating against females, it would have been then. Not a chance. Every professor I ever had wanted me to succeed. We also hear that colleges pose a lethal threat to minorities, that they are hostile to people of color. The reality is this, Glenn. There is not a single college campus today whose administrators are not twisting themselves into knots to try and hire and admit as many underrepresented minorities as possible. They employ vast racial preferences in admissions to try to bring in blacks and Hispanics. This is a misguided policy. It's extraordinarily destructive to its alleged beneficiaries, but they insist on doing it. So we have an environment that's a test case. It is demonstrably false to say that these are racist, sexist environments. And yet there's a massive diversity bureaucracy on all large college campuses today costing millions and millions of taxpayer dollars and tuition dollars devoted to indoctrinating students into this narcissistic ideology of victimhood. The university campus is a threat, but it is, I believe, only a threat and by design. And people need to understand this. This is not hyperbole. It is it is designed to take apart the Western world. It is by design taking apart everything that the Enlightenment gave us. And what the Enlightenment gave us was a way out of the Dark Ages. It's why they can say that math is racist. Again, I applaud, Glenn, your sense of urgency. You're the only person I've encountered that is willing to say what is at stake because, frankly, it sounds unhinged. It you know, the, a university, the university's duty is to serve as the transmission belt for our precious inheritance. Mm-hmm. Who would think that the, the people who are the faculty who are so privileged to be the bearers of this inheritance. They should be down on their knees in gratitude to be the curators of greatness, beauty, and sublimity. Instead, they dismiss it, they disparage it. I was uh, the subject of one of these massive violent silencing uh, efforts at Claremont McKenna College in Southern California two years ago to prevent me from speaking about the police. And afterwards, uh, the black students at Pomona College, another of the Claremont colleges, 
wrote a manifesto against me that I quote in my book that is just a stunning example of student ignorance. It purports to talk about the Enlightenment. It purports to argue through a sort of a, a, a inept version of high theory, of Foucaultian postmodernism <laughs> that you're so aware of, yes. to argue that the Enlightenment is the source of oppression. They say so, that the search for truth is a, a way of oppressing minorities. The thinking is so unbelievably garbled, and yet they're picking this up from their professors. Okay, so Heather, could you, could you hold on? Could, can you stay with us for a few more minutes? I have a, a 1030 interview. So oh, shoot. Uh, well, then could we have you? Could we have you back? You're on Eastern time. Could we have you back? I'm sorry we started so uh, late, but she's on to it. We'll continue this conversation when we come back. I feel badly that I, I shortchanged Heather McDonald. Um, her book is the, the Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. We're going to have her back. In fact, I'll bring her in for, um, uh, for a, a podcast or an interview. Um, it, listen, just, just listen to who she has endorsing this book. Jordan Peterson, Steven Pinker, hmm. Charles Murray, wow. Christina Hoff Summers, wow. and Peggy Noonan. <laughs> that's not a bad grouping. <laughs> not bad. Yeah. yeah, I think that was a pretty big one. No, that's great. Yeah, um, she is. She's right on the money. Uh, and please pick up her book. It's a great grouping um, to go a little bit deeper, perhaps, uh, on where my book is going to be taking you. Uh, so grab it. The diversity delusion, also addicted to outrage, which comes out uh, next week. What she's what she's talking about here is is the most important thing that we could possibly talk about. I've been asking myself for a while, what matters most? What matters most? And the answer is different depending on in, in, in what realm, in, in my family realm, my, my family, my, my children, my wife, in in my uh, spiritual realm, doing the things that I'm supposed to do, doing the things that I know I'm supposed to do, read my read my scriptures and serve other people. In work, being a good steward, trying to do things, you know, the best of my ability, trying to make a, a good workplace that's good to people. That's good for people and create something that you, you know, find value in. When it comes to saving the country. I will tell you what doesn't have value. Arguing about the president doesn't have any value, really doesn't. Because if it's not Donald Trump, it will be Mike Pence. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Remember. The GOP offered up the nicest guy I can I've ever met, I think, Mitt Romney, even though I disagree with him. And I think he probably comes as close to hate as Mitt Romney could ever come to, which is I just really dislike the things Glenn does. That guy. Remember, he was the Antichrist. He was an animal torturer. So it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter. 
That's not the problem. And the problem is if, if I asked you, Stu, let's destroy the culture or let's destroy the West Mm -hmm. and let's bring America and all of the Western uh, civilization down to its knees. How would you do it? It's a pretty big task, right? A very difficult task. They almost did it. They almost did it in the 1960s, but it failed at the last minute. Why did it fail? I don't know the average American's desire to go back to things that were, you know, traditional and normal and people don't like chaos. They yeah, didn't, they, the, the, the murders, the, the assassinations, the burning of cities, bombings, the bombings. Yeah. They don't they don't like all that. They don't want all that. OK, so so what happened? They looked at both sides of the equation, right? And picked the picked the right. one of stability. And-, and they could look at both sides of the equation because at that point, we were still doing NASA. We were still going to the moon. It was the government. Yeah, you can't trust the government because we're in Vietnam. But look also at what we're doing. Look at some of the things that we're doing. Remember, at the time, it was don't trust anyone over 30. Well, you know, those same hippies that used to say that then they're all in their 60s and 70s and they're not saying that anymore. They're the ones going to 18 year olds going, oh, no, no, you can trust us. Just don't trust the other people. But it used to be don't trust anyone over 30. So they tried to do it, but they couldn't seal the deal because the really the only thing they had was culture and not all of it. But they had music, but they lost the Beatles in 1968. They lost the Beatles. The Beatles sing in revolution. You know, if you're going to walk around with carrying signs of Chairman Mao, we want to change your head. So they lose Altamont. Altamont, the Rolling Stones are on stage. And what happens at Altamont? All of these these bikers who are supposedly the police stabbings start to go on in the middle of the concert nobody wants this nobody wants the bombings nobody wants revolution and a communist party so they have to regroup we can't just do this with culture we need the media we need culture you know we got to john wayne and jimmy stewart and henry fonda and those guys they got to die We need a new class of people, and we need to stop all of those people like them from getting into this business. We need total control of the culture. We need the institutions, and we need to discredit the institutions. We not only need to be in them, but we also need to discredit them. We need the universities. We need to dismantle history, and that includes traditions and myths the national myth or tradition of there's something special about America. That is something that we all believe or used to. We don't now. Why? How did these things change? It's called postmodernism. And it is everything that you've ever heard that you've made fun of. Everything. It's the gobbledygook that you listen to and you're like, that doesn't shut up. Shut up. 
And as as Heather was saying, it's the stuff that we all thought, well, this is just going to pass because they'll get out into the real world. No, no, they're going to get out into the real world and they are going to change the real world. Because it's it's believe it or not, it's a lot easier to be a victim in the short run. It's a lot better to blame your failure on somebody else than blame it on you. And if you can blame it on the system, on that guy, this person, this institution, the way you were raised, the money you didn't get, the banks, that whatever, you can always find somebody that is oppressing you. And it's pretty easy for a while. I know this because I'm an alcoholic. I'm a recovering alcoholic. And the reason why I'm recovering is because at some point that addiction becomes becomes unlivable because at some point you're like i can't do this anymore it'll be death but here's the secret of postmodernism death is what they're rooting for it is it is honestly the the only thing that i like like progressivism i can see progressivism and say okay well there's you know philosophies around progressivism that I think are really evil, like, you know, eugenics. But even in eugenics, if you didn't know at the time what that was going to be, what that was going to lead to, you could say, okay, well, I understand. It was a time. You know, if you still believe in that stuff, okay, that's a little spooky. But postmodernism is the only thing that I have ever encountered that I cannot think of a constructive use for it. Because its whole design is to collapse the Western way of thinking. And what is critical to understand is, what is the Western way? The Western way of thinking. What built the West? What freed and cured so many diseases and freed so many people? And yes, it's got its problems. It was not the capitalist system. It was the Enlightenment. It was fixing reason firmly in her seat and questioning everything with boldness. Even, now think of this, at the time, there's the one thing that throughout the Dark Ages you could not question because it was beyond politically incorrect. It was a death sentence. So Thomas Jefferson wrote, fix reason firmly in her seat. And question with boldness, even the very existence of God. Today, that would be question with boldness, even the university system. Even hashtag me too. Even those who say they will crush you for your questioning. Because postmodernism needs you to stop questioning. They need to tangle you up into so many different words and so many different things that you're like, okay, well, I guess, maybe. No. No, do not go over the cliff with the rest of humanity. No. How many genders are there? Two. When science can show me, science can show me and prove to me that there are more than two genders, male and female, I will add that one. 
or that two or that 183 when science shows me. But by detaching from science, I am destroying everything. If there is no reason, if there is no truth, well, then it's only who's in power that gets to decide what's right and wrong. It's why now people on the left are starting to panic. Democrats and people who are on the left that are in the university system have such urgency and they're starting to panic because they've always been there. They've been there. They've been there. They're the, they're the warrior for the left. They've carried all the water. And now all of a sudden, because they will not toe the line, because it now crosses into their territory of science, they are now being told, you're an enemy. And they realize, holy, if they're going to come after me, somebody who's been here the whole time, we're all dead. And they realize it's not socialism we're arguing about. It is communism or a totalitarian state. Coincidentally, that is the goal of postmodernism. I, I should say this. Postmodernism's goal is to destroy the hierarchy. To destroy. Now, think of that. The hierarchy, that's a pyramid. Who's at the top of our pyramid? Moses and Jesus. Top of our pyramid is be a better person. They're putting it and reversing it. And they're destroying everything that Jesus and Moses taught. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. And they will tell you that the only reason why I'm saying this is because I support the hierarchy or I support the, the patriarchy. And I am oppressing you because I'm hypnotizing you. Don't go over the cliff. You must know this information so when your kids begin to speak this, they do not dismiss you as someone who just doesn't know. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I know. Let's have a let's sit down. Let's talk about postmodernism, kids. Let's tell me what you're learning. I'll tell you what I think about it. But as somebody who has raised you for 18 years, you owe me the respect to listen to what I have to say. And you're going to get so bogged down into gobbledygook, you're going to get frustrated with me and say, oh, you just don't know. No, we're going to make an agreement going in. Do you believe in reason? If you don't. Well, then I guess we, we need to find some chemo treatment because you may already be too far gone. The book is out next week. It's Addicted to Outrage and Why You Cannot Get Addicted to Outrage Because Then Reason Flees. And that's one of their goals. American Financing is our sponsor this half hour. We want to thank them. Uh, there are recent market shifts that could uh, give you, if you're a 
if you're buying a home, uh, a leg up on the latter part of the year here in July, national inventory of homes uh, listed above 350,000 rows to about 5.7. That means uh, that you have as a buyer, you have a better chance of getting something and the sellers are more eager to close, especially before the holidays. So that gives you more leverage. So now may be the time to buy a home. American Financing. Call them uh, at 1-800-906-2440. That's 800-906-2440. It's AmericanFinancing.net. AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing Corporation, NMLS 182334, www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Stu, on the TV show today, we have video that has not been really seen before in its entirety, have we? Yeah, and it's been restored. Uh, it's video from a camera guy who's just happened to be down by. Uh, How has this not been out? Well, you know, some of it had been out. Um, they hadn't. The whole thing hadn't been out, and then they restored it. And and I mean, it's intense to watch. The guy's just walking around with a camera all around nine eleven. He's, oh, you know, a couple of minutes before the whole thing collapses, he's right under the tower. Uh, else we have uh, Bob Beckwith. He is the guy, the fireman that stood next to George W. Bush during the famous bullhorn speech. We're going to talk to him, uh, and you won't believe his story. He <laughs> will change everything you thought was happening that day. It is such an amazing story. I can't believe it hasn't been told yet. Bob Beckwith joins us next. The country has been pushed to the limit. Our political bonds have been torn apart. We need a true leader who can save us from certain doom. Unfortunately, we could only find this guy. Hey, it's Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck is coming live to talk about the right path forward and to make fun of the people standing in the way. He might not be able to save the country, but at least we can all go down laughing. Glenn Beck Live, the Addicted to Outrage Tour, on tour this fall. For tickets, VIP packages, and more, visit glennbeck.com. Glenn Beck. It's Tuesday, September 11th. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. A picture seared in the nation's memory. President Bush at ground zero three days after the attacks. A bullhorn in one hand, the other draped around firefighter Bob that Beckwith. Firefighter with President Bush was Bob Beckwith. Bob Beckwith stood shoulder to shoulder with President Bob Bush. Bob Beckwith, a firefighter from Queens, New York, in his mid-60s. That day, he stood alongside the president and stepped onto the national patriotic stage. Bob, are you there? Yes. Hi, Bob. How are you? Very good. And yourself? I'm very good, sir. Very good. I uh, I just wanted to touch base with you. Um, the, your experiences with 9-11, because I I painted a painting of, of you a couple of weeks ago for an auction. And as I was painting you, I thought, you know, I know this man's story, but not really. And now that you've had you know, almost 20 years to digest it. I'd love to hear, first of all, where were you on 9-11 when it happened? When it happened, Glenn, my daughter had called me that my grandson going to school on his bicycle was hit by a car about two blocks away from me. And I ran over there to see what was happening, and and I saw him on the ground. But he was moving, so I uh, that was a plus. 
And I found out from the uh, ambulance driver where, what hospital they were taking him to. And I came home to get my car. I, I listened on the radio, and it said, it's I heard a guy saying that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything. And, and so I came inside, and, and my wife had it on the television already, and they had cameras there. I was looking, and I said, that's a little bit bigger than a small plane. Yeah. I, I figured I got a bad day going. My grandson gets hit by a car, and now a, a plane goes in. Where were you living at the time, Bob? I'm living right here in Baldwin, New York. When did the phone call come in that you had to go? Were you with your grandson in the hospital, or what? When did you? Yes, I went to the hospital to uh, be with him. Everybody was watching television at the hospital, and uh, and I I saw. The, the South Tower come down. Oh my God. One World Trade Center has collapsed in its entirety. One World Trade Center is gone. And then a, a few months later, the, uh, the the North Tower came down. The other tower just collapsed. collapsed. I knew that there was guys in the building, you know, because the firemen were in there. You know what goes through your head when the, it, it just hits you pretty hard. Bob, did you, did you have... Any th- inkling that those towers might come down when you saw? Never thought it would. Add. I yeah. really, honestly, never thought that they were coming down. Boy, was I shocked when they when that happened. So when would you, when did you first arrive at Ground Zero? What happened was I I came home that uh, from the hospital later that day. And uh, I told my wife and my kids that I'm going down to ground zero. And they said, don't go down yet too well. I was 69 years old. And uh, they thought I was an old man there and uh, I'm going to get in the way. So uh, just don't go down there. The next day, I find out that um, Jimmy Boyle. Now, Jimmy Boyle was the, uh, the president of the UFA, the Uniform Firefighters Association. Mm-hmm. And I was one of his delegates. And when I found out his son is missing, I said, that's it, I'm out of here. And I I suited up the next morning, and I got to go down to Ground Zero. So I'm driving down there. I'm on a BQE, the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, and I'm going towards the Williamsburg Bridge. Oh, you, guess what? The bridges are closed. And I saw a, a cop's car going over the bridge with two vans behind it. I said, I'm going to give it a shot. And I drove between the cones. And I went on a bridge. But when I got over to the other side, there was nobody. No, nobody was there. Everything was gray. And I went over to the house watch at 55 Engine. And I told him I'm going down to ground zero. And I said, well, good luck. I said, what the heck is that good luck about? Anyway, the police department, they, they, they're lined up on a perimeter all around the ground zero. I said, I got to get in there, you know. And I showed them my badge, and uh, they let me in. And then the guy said to me, good luck. So I went down to about a block or two, and then I see the National Guard. Mm-hmm. They were on the perimeter also. Mm-hmm. And I said, we don't care that you're a fireman, but uh, you're not getting in. So I had to think fast, and I talked my way in. <laughs> I w- you know, I was at that perimeter. I don't know how anyone could have talked themselves through that line. How did you do it? Uh, I, I told a little fib there. I told him I, I, I missed the rig, and I was going to get in trouble if I didn't get in there. And, and they bought it. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. 
So you're so you're there. You snuck across the bridge on the yeah. island. Then you you uh, you sneak across the uh, barrier with the National Guard. Right. And then what happens? And then I came into Ground Zero, and I tell you, it was a shock. Now you can see the people running for, as the buildings begin to cross. The people running, racing for their lives. One of the buildings is partially collapsed. It means that as yet unidentified survivors will be found in underground. The first thing that came to my mind was, this is how it probably looked in, in the Blitz. When yeah. Wow. You know what happened? I, I worked down there all that day. And I went on the bucket brigade, and I found a shovel, and I started digging with the guys, and we were, and we found a, a, a pumper. A pumper is a fire engine in the rubble, and we told the crane operator to put the put the rig out on the in the street, and which he did. Some guy comes over and he says, "The, the president is here." And I saw the guys put their shovel down, and I put mine down, and I walked out to the street. And there's that pumper we just dug out of the rubble. I jumped up on it, and right across the street was a command post, a tent with all microphones in front of it. I figured, oh, that's where the president's going to talk. This Secret Service man came over to me, and he said, is this safe? I said, yeah. And he said, well, jump up and down on it for me. So I jumped up and down on it for him. And he said, okay. He said, somebody important's coming over here. And when they come here, you help them up, and then you get down. I said, okay, because you do what the Secret Service guy tells you to do. Mm. The president comes around, and he does a hard right, and he comes right in front of me, and he puts his arm up. So I pull him up, and I turn him around, and I said to him, are you okay, Mr. President? He said, yeah. And then I start to get down. He said, where are you going? I said, I, I was told to get down. He said, no, no, you stay right here. And he put his arm around me, and... Uh, that's my story. That's unbelievable. It I didn't. Is. I didn't really know. Is. I didn't know any of those things. What did the president say to you at one point? Do you even remember when he turned to you in the middle of the speech and he said some things to you? Do you remember? No, we couldn't hear. We couldn't yeah. hear each other. We did speak to each other, but we didn't hear each other. It was too loud. The guys were—they were yelling. I didn't remember him having that that megaphone, that the bullhorn. Really. And then he started to speak, and he's speaking to the right, and and the guys on the left—they're yelling, "We can't hear you!" And he then he turned to the left with the with the bullhorn, and he said, "I can hear you." And the, the whole world hears you. And the people who knocked these buildings down. We'll hear all of us soon. They went crazy. When they went nuts. They started chanting USA, USA, USA. And it, it, it was, uh, he said everything in those three sentences. So, Bob, when, um, you, you were given a, uh, a flag right after his visit, right? Yes. When I was helping him get down from the rig, somebody handed him the flag. And he puts his arm up and he waves the flag. I saw Governor Pataki standing there, so I tapped him on the shoulder. And he turns around and he grabs my legs and he picks me up and he puts me out in the street. I said, you're going to hurt yourself. He said, I'm a big guy. I said, okay. I'm walking back to go back to work. And this Secret Service guy 
tapped me on the shoulder and he said, the, the president's been looking for you. I said, oh, now what did I do? <laughs> and, and he said, he wants you to have this flag. I said, oh, very nice, thank you. And I stuck it in my pocket and I'm going back to work. Anyway, Glenn, the Secret Service guy that told me when the politician comes over there and takes my spot to get down, when I went on to television, I, I would tell them my story. And I got a letter from the White House. I'm the guy that, that told you to, to, what to do. Thank you for calling me a Secret Service guy, but, uh, and he signs it, Carl Rove, Senior Advisor to the President. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my yes, God. exactly. That's so, what I said. So let me ask you this, because the day before, your family was saying, you're just going to get in the way. When you got home after sneaking across the bridge, sneaking past uh, the National Guard, working, then the president is giving the one of the most memorable speeches probably since the day of infamy. Uh, what did your family say? I drove over and I said, who's going to believe that I was with the president? <laughs> there were no cameras down there, Glenn. No cameras at all that I saw. Anyway, I pull up in front of my house, and people are coming out, my neighbors, and they all carry in the candles. That was the day they would, had candles. Mm. And they came into my driveway, and this, and this police officer across the street from me, and a city cop, and he said to me, Beck, you're, right, you're, uh, you're on television. I said, get out of here. There's no, there were no cameras down there. So I came in the house, and my granddaughter was sitting on a couch, and she says, Grandpa, you're on, watch, you're on television. And they were showing it over and over. I said, wow, I was surprised that, that they had me and the president. It was the most important thing. Mm. Yeah. You, you stayed in touch with the president? I, we did. We still keep in touch. Uh, myself and my wife and, and my, a couple of my kids, we were invited to the Oval Office. And it was very nice. Everybody was there, you know, Governor Pataki, Carl Rove was there, Mayor Giuliani, Tommy Van Essen, the commissioner, and Chuck mm -hmm. Schumer. You've had some special experiences because of that picture. Yes, we were called into, excuse me, uh, Germany three times and then twice in Cologne mm. and that uh, really treated top shelf. So, Bob, when you look back at this now, what is it that you take away? What is it that we should, as a people, take away from that moment uh, on the fire truck? You know what, Glenn? We fought two wars. We fought the Japanese and we fought the Germans. And we stuck together. And that's the same thing that happened at 9-11. At, at people came in from every state to help us. Search and you rescue and, and... Rescue, right. And the, yeah. and the food. I was... I was there, Bob, and uh, I saw people come from all over the country to feed you guys. And my, my wife and I went. Uh, these firemen were coming out after a long day, and both of us just started to applaud. Like, I don't know. We, it was just, it was, everything was upside down, and uh, the enormity of it was just remarkable. Yes, it really was. But we stuck together, and uh, we we received uh, rigs that we lost in it, and the other states helped. They built the rigs and sent them to us. You know, this is America, and people are great. They really are. 
Bob, it's a it's an honor to talk to you. Uh, it really is. I I, I made a um, I made a painting for for charity, and I was I was wondering if you would be willing to sign it. If I sent it up to you, would you be willing to sign it? Of course. That would be great. That would be great. Bob, thank you so much. God bless you. God bless you, Glenn. Thank you. Bye bye. I love that message. In the end, the people of America are great. They really are great. All right, let me tell you a little bit about uh, our sponsor this half hour. Thank you, Goldline, for being such a faithful sponsor for so long. Uh, Goldline, we've been telling you about their Silver Maple Flex uh, cart, which is right here. And I've actually, I've actually torn it all. Whoops, I've torn it all up uh, just to show you that it, it's it's a bunch of silver that you break off in little squares. Uh, and, uh, that way you can, you can barter and, and trade with smaller pieces of silver in case silver really went through the roof. Um, don't forget. They also have the gold as we're protecting ourselves, our families, our portfolios, you should diversify in both gold and silver. And that's what the maple flex card is all about in gold now and in silver. Uh, and there it's, it's, you know, it's made by the Canadian mint and it is legal tender and it's, you know, one quarter of an ounce, one tenth of an ounce. Uh, and it's total one ounce of, uh, of silver or gold. You owe it to yourself to call Goldline. Learn more about the gold and silver bars by calling 866 Goldline. Is the world actually, have we healed from 9 11 or has things, have things become more dangerous and are we closer to the edge? I'll let you answer, and then you can go to Goldline, 1-866-GOLDLINE, 1-866-GOLDLINE, or goldline.com. Glad you've tuned in today. Are we going to get a chance to play any of that George H.W. Bush interview that we, we did? Stu and I went up. It, doesn't it feel like we were 12? Yeah, we, lo- we look like it, too. Sadly. God, how uh, long has it been? We well, know it's been it 16 looks, years. Well, if I judge by the pictures, it's been about 60. Really? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, it has been. In, in, in news or dog years, it has been 60 yeah. years. Um, but uh, we, were, we went up to Kenny Bunkport uh, to, to meet with George H.W. Bush on September. It was for the anniversary of September 11th, 2002. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... I mean, it's weird just to even listen to him now. You've forgotten what he sounded like back in the day. You have one clip we can, yeah, we play? can play a couple clips here. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, let's do uh, let's do the first one. This is uh, about him talking about nine, the how long it took for the attack to sink in. It took a while for me to hit to to, to profoundly understand uh, the seriousness of what had happened. I mean, obviously, like most people, I first wondered, well, could this be a strange coincidence of two planes going into the towers and quickly discarded that theory. Uh, But I think it was several hours after it happened that I realized that this was a uh, coordinated uh, attack on America and on the civilized world, really. And it, it, uh, but it took a while to sink in. We had not been attacked on our own shores like this. Hawaii, yes, uh, for Pearl Harbor. But I don't believe Hawaii was a state then. And so this was the first time, and this was hitting innocent civilians, all civilians in, in, in New York City. He also talked about his son's 
faith a bit. Listen. But on September 11th, uh, the, the country saw what I have known all along and what Barbara's known all along, and I guess what the voters of Texas had known all along, or he would not have been reelected, the governor of the f- uh, second biggest state in the nation by 70% of the vote. So I think, there, I think this idea, well, he's a new man. Uh, maybe, it was, maybe this strength uh, lifted by his faith, uh, determination, uh, hadn't been clear to the American people. But it certainly was uh, the horror of September 11th unfolded. You ask my wife Barbara about it, or you ask me about it, we would tell you uh, that we have felt his strength and his determination for a long, long time. He remembered the thing that I took away from it the same way. Listen. Well, I think on September 12th, the country came together uh, as it did on, on December 7th and December 8th. December 7th and 8th, everybody wanted to fight for the country. I mean, every, all us kids. It didn't matter what we thought about, whether we'd save American boys from going overseas or should we go on to college. Everyone wanted to serve. <clears throat> on, on September 12th, I think the country was very, very unified. I think there's been a flaking off to some degree, not a lot, uh, depends how you phrase the question. But there's been a little kind of not quite as many flags flying, not quite as many prayers being offered. Uh, and maybe that's to be expected as time goes by. But I really believe that the president uh, motivated America in a wonderful way on sep- when, he, when he talked to the nation uh, right after the September 11th. And I think that spirit uh, that he sensed, that all of us sense, is still there. I want to pick it up there when we come back. The flaking off of the spirit we had on 9-12. Next. Welcome to the program. Glad you're here. I want to talk to you a little bit about this experience that we had looking at the pictures uh, when we went up to meet George H.W. Bush. This was right after 9-11, a year. Right? Year anniversary of 9-11. And we look like we're 12. Mm. Uh, well, we were... Stu looks like he's 12. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> uh, no, you. I mean, you look a lot younger. Okay. What happened? Yeah. News. That's what happened. (laughs) News. Stu and I were talking yesterday about how Fox, first time I've heard you say this, took years off of our life. Just took years off of our life. Did it you? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, that that was just a fun time, but it was a really hard. Oh, my gosh. It was so hard. So hard. Anyway, um, in that interview with George H.W. Bush, he came to the same conclusion I think we all had, and that is... 9-12 is such an amazing day. The day after 9-11. Because it's, mm-hmm. that's who we are. Still believe that's who we are? Mm, not really. Doesn't seem like we're there now. Um, that's, doesn't seem like that's who we are now to me. It, it strikes me as, because I think it's, it's who we want to be. And it's the best of us. I think both mm-hmm. of those things can be said. 
we really did come together. But it's like, but it's I mean, like clearly saying, we're not there. We're not that people right now. But I don't know. Could if, we get back to that? I hope so. But we're but not. I think there. we may have the opportunity, unfortunately, to see on Thursday. As this. Oh, I haven't told you about Thursday yet. I guess I should. Mm. I should make the announcement of no, the hurricane. <laughs> oh, you looked at me like, do you know something well, that <laughs> we saw? It, yeah. I think we saw it with Harvey. Yeah, right? we did. I mean, we did. Yeah. You know, and yeah. Um, and we have that opportunity. It, you know, if you were part of the 912 project. Did did you did you disband because. You viewed it as a Tea Party thing, because it was never a Tea Party thing. The 912 project was different than the Tea Party. The 912 project was about principles and values and getting together in your community and and being your best self. I don't know that they disbanded. I mean, they're still doing. No, they're still really doing good work. Yeah, some yeah. some people are. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but if you if you left, why? And um, and you know, you want to do something. You want to relive that this Thursday. Hurricanes coming on shore, and we could use your help. And we're already sending people out through Mercury One, which is kind of where I took my nine twelve kind of spirit. Um, and Mercury One is going to be there uh, on Thursday. So as soon as that thing uh, calms down some, we will be there with food and supplies and everything else. We could use your help with donations at mercuryone.org. That's mercuryone.org. In the spirit of nine twelve, uh, let's gather again together and do something together even oh. if it's just um on the internet mercuryone.org everybody came together for Houston last year i'm sure they'll do it again for north carolina oh, it was amazing wherever that hits it was amazing I, I i'm not as big a fan of coming together in charity as i am just being really outraged about stuff I like really going, I like you like that on the internet and just finding things to be outraged about yeah you know just be furious what is what have you found today oh my gosh there's there's always something to find Pat, you had something i uh, today, can i tell you, you something i can't believe that you they, they named this hurricane florence I mean, a woman, a woman, yeah. a woman is not an oppressor. Uh, I supre- oh ask Serena Williams. Uh, uh, they would never yeah. do that to a man. Right. They would never name a, a hurricane after a man. And Serena right. is is all about women's rights. Right. That's why right. I'm pissed. Right. Because she right. is women's rights. When right. she's out there playing tennis and making millions of dollars, it's not about millions of dollars. No. Right. It's not about support. So, I mean, unless you're Clarence Thomas, women's rights. unless you're Clarence Thomas's wife or wife, then you can be an oppressor. Or if you, you know, if you're, you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Condoleezza Rice, then you're an oppressor. But Florence? <laughs> wow. Not an oppressor. Not an oppressor. No. I'm outraged. Thank you for reminding me what really matters. <laughs> <laughs> what do you uh, what do you I I am uh I'm actually outraged about Maxine Waters continuing to double down on all of her nonsense. This one's pretty bad. This is pretty bad. Is this the one where she said impeach, 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 impeach? Yes. Yes, and she also said that uh, there are those who said we lacked civility when I got up and talked about the president's cabinet, and I said, if you see him anywhere, if you see him at a restaurant, if you see him in a department store, even a gasoline station, just tell him, you're not welcome here or anywhere. And so it frightened a lot of people, and of course, the lying president said that I threatened all of his constituents. I did not threaten his constituents, his supporters. I do that all the time. But I didn't do it at that time. Oh, my God. They tried to frame that as violence. So she admits it, that she does it all, all the, the time. time. So mm. did you hear what happened to that town? The press went away, and nobody's really followed up on. So what happened to that little restaurant? That little, what was it, the Red Hand in the, in the little town? Do you know? No. They are dying. Are they? They're dying. 
They're begging for, for visitors to come to the town. Nobody's coming to that. They're a big tourist town. Nobody's coming. Wow. They're dying on the vine because hmm. they made people feel like it's you, they're not comfortable. Well. They're, you're not welcome. You made them think that they're not welcome here or anywhere. Yeah. So. Why go? You're, why go if I'm not welcome there? I'm not going to go. I mean, can you imagine hassling every Trump supporter you see on the street I mean, you talk about the values of of nine twelve, and coming together as a nation. That's as far away from that as you can possibly get. Right? How do you rebuild? And if in in reverse, if we are going to do the reverse, how how, how are we ever going to come together? You can't. You, you can't. You can't. You can't. For people who say, you know, Glenn, I know you talk about reconciliation, but we can't reconcile with everybody. You're right. We can't reconcile, reconcile with everybody. There are people that say, mm-hmm. no, I want communism or I want anarchy or I want whatever. Mm-hmm. The, okay. We can't reconcile with those people because that's, that's, they've made up their mind. However, that's not the majority of people. Right. And if we don't, if we don't make a safe haven, if we don't open our arms and say, Hey, you're just starting to wake up. You're just starting to see problems, too, with this. I'm not going to judge you. You don't judge me. Let's just start talking. Let's just start getting back together and talking. Then it, then it, we have a chance. As agonizing as Jim Carrey was on Bill Maher the other night, and he was. It was hard, hard. to listen to. He actually had one moment where he talked about coming together, where he, he said, look, I can sit down, though. And have a conversation and dinner with any Trump supporter. I'm willing to, you know, talk to them and love them. And so but, but, maybe you but, could come together even with Jim Carrey. So I, I don't know. So it would be interesting. It would be an interesting it would. test. Because I respect Jim Carrey. I think Jim Carrey has gone through some sort of a metamorphosis where he yeah. is. He has gone beyond the celebrity where it, that he's recognized that doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is really hard to do and don't know a lot of people who have done it. And um, and so I have a lot of respect for him on that. However, you know, he would probably say, oh, well, I couldn't talk to Glenn Beck because Glenn Beck, you know, look at what he's done. And he stirred up. the. Well, Jim, um, how about your paintings? Mm-hmm. How about your paintings? Uh, we have to be able It'd to be a great s- test to see if you come on this show. Put your put your money where your mouth is and show up on this show, uh, and see if you can talk to anybody. You just said you could, so I know I can. Let's do it. I know I can. He's an, I mean, he's such an interesting guy too. We've talked. He you know, Played. He has these great moments of of seemingly just not being non political and bringing yeah. people together. And he's, well, he's that, seemingly has found faith in some way. That and, time at the yeah. shelter for yeah. uh, gang members or whatever that was. Amazing. He had an incredible amazing. speech there. Amazing. I think he's an amazing guy. Yeah. Let me ask you this. On the reconciliation thing, it does not mean that you stop believing the things that you believe. And it does not mean that you stop, that you don't, that you make excuses for someone on their behavior or you know that you say wait well what was happening there it just means you're honest about it and then you recognize pivot points or you don't and you say okay well i appreciate you but this is you know the little box that i kind of place you in because you are this or whatever it just means can we come together it does not mean 
do I support you or do I um, uh, if you if you are, a, you know, in, in my case, if you are a total radical, I, I, I can't come together with you. But I can sit down and talk to you. An awkward setup because it's the it is the question that I've been asking myself for the last six months. Van Jones says that he has gone through a metamorphosis. Van Jones says that he um, is different than the guy he was when he was in the Oval. And I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. I'm not sure what does that, that mean, means. Does that mean he's no longer a communist revolutionary? Yes. It does? Yes. Okay. I'm not sure. Hmm. I'm not sure. I, I, don't, I know he's different than he was. I don't know if he... I don't know if I buy into, you know... Well, I was a communist, and now I'm not a communist, and I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I wouldn't know unless I spoke to him. You want the ultimate test of two people who were at absolute odds, and may still be. Should I have a conversation with Van Jones? Should Van Jones and I sit down openly on air? Mm-hmm. No fighting. No, the rules would be, you got to be honest. You got to be honest. And I will, I will ask every question I've ever, I wanted to ask you. You can ask every question you can, but there's no winning here. There's just, let's talk as two adults and see if we can do any healing, even if we disagree with each other. Wow, be pretty uh, interesting. Yeah, that's some heavy I think lifting. He'd, I yeah. think he'd do it. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think, I think he'd, he'd come in and do it. He'd, he'd come on the air. Worth doing. Uh, I think a lot of people would be pissed at me. Yeah. Why? For uh, allowing him the forum. For trying even to reconcile with him. Well, I wouldn't allow him the forum uh, to just lie. I mean, you can lie all you want. But I'm not going to. Ex- I'll call you out on yeah. it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it'd be very uncomfortable if we're sitting here for 45 minutes and you're just lying. I, I mean, it would. The, the ground rule would be that I don't want any talking points. The minute you think I'm BSing you or you're BSing me, the, the other has to say it. That's bullcrap. Stop it. Stop it. Say something real. <laughs> it would be it would be riveting. I think it to would. watch. I mean, especially I you think know, it would. If, you know, it's a having a conversation with someone and, and asking them the questions that you've always wanted to ask them is not. It's not some kumbaya moment, right? It's but no, it's I'm not going to play kumbaya be. with a guy who wants to destroy America and is a communist. I, I mean, no, right? Um, <laughs> no, and, and, yeah, there was at least a time where that was. You know, well, that's who he was. Who he was? Mm-hmm. Who is he and now? I, would be I don't know who say. he is now. He says he's not that man. He says he's grown up. That would be riveting. I think you should do it. You're the guy who just said everybody would hate me if I no, did I, do it. Not everybody. I, <laughs> some people would be pissed. <laughs> Let him be pissed. <laughs> well, then that sounds exactly like the thing I should do, because that's usually what I do. Is <laughs> piss everybody you, off? You piss everybody off. Yeah. Pat Gray Unleashed coming up on the Blaze Radio and TV Networks. Also, Pat is on the News and Why It Matters along with myself and Glenn and Sarah Gonzalez and Doc Thompson. If you haven't listened to that podcast or watched it on the Blaze TV, you have to. It's great. It's great. It's great. It's great. It's on your way home uh, at uh, 530 Eastern, the News and Why It Matters right after the Glenn Beck program at 5. Sponsor this half hour is My Patriot Supply. 
You know, you know, Stu, it's really weird. We've been talking about a doomsday breakdown uh, since September 11th. And and by golly, it hasn't happened. Or has it? Or has it? <laughs> I mean, certainly changed in a lot of ways that are really significant. Um, no, but I mean, all the things that we've worried about necessary, you know, catastrophic breakdown hasn't happened. But think of the wildfires, the hurricanes, the one that's happening, you know, on Thursday. Mm. If you had my Patriot supply right now when they're saying get ready to go, you would not have to worry about how much money do we have? How are we going to afford the hotel and the food? Because you'd be able to grab and put all of that food that you have for my Patriot supply in the trunk of your car, the back seat of your car. It's all packed away in these slimline tote uh, boxes that are really, really easy. I mean, the burden, the can't imagine the parents that are thinking right now who are living on the edge paycheck to paycheck where am i going to go and how am i going to afford to eat out even if it's mcdonald's how are we going to do it please take that burden off your shoulders prepare yourself prepare with glenn at uh, 1-800-200-7163 or prepare with glenn.com my patriot supply help my family and i prepare do it now uh, right now, three days worth of food. It's only $75. That includes the tote. So it's 1-800-271-63 or preparewithglenn.com. I think what we got out of today's program is Stu was fat then. This is a brilliant part. I didn't, I didn't really plan it at the time. But yeah. When I was like in my early to mid 20s, I was well, uh, was fat. And then when you're September 11th, too. you were fat. Right. But I was fat. I'm fat too now, but I'm thinner than I was then. So they show the old pictures. And while I look a lot older, I've actually thinned out a little bit. Yeah. This is a brilliant strategy. Yeah. Get fat in your 20s. If you're in high school right now, think about this for your future. See, now Get I, fat in your 20s. I went the other way. When I was fat, I was fat. And then I got fatter. And okay. uh, uh, so that hasn't worked. <laughs> well, no, okay. I mean, it, I, I was fat. And then mm-hmm. I went on CNN and I was so afraid of being seen on TV being fat. Yes. That I lost like, uh, I don't really even know. Thin at the, really thin. Really thin. Like scary started. thin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and then I got used to television. I'm like, I don't care what people think. Right. And then mm-hmm. I got fat. Mm-hmm. And then I got fatter. Mm-hmm. And I got fatter because I was getting fat. Right, like in depra- only depression. Eat, because- I only eat because I'm fat. <laughs> it's a tough circle. It's a really, it really- tough one to break. <laughs> it just keeps happening. Damn Arabs. Wait, September eleventh. Uh, how did that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but I need somebody to blame. <laughs> okay, good. We found somebody. <laughs> Damn. Hey, we'll see you tonight, five o'clock on the Blaze TV. Glenn Beck, Mercury.